In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. There is, to state the blindingly obvious, an awful lot of money in making new drugs. The most obvious recent example is the tens of billions of dollars that Pfizer alone made last year from its COVID vaccine. But really, it could be anything. Heart medication, antidepressants, painkillers, whatever. If you can develop and patent a new effective drug, you're going to be rich. And naturally, there is a lot of competition to do just that. So what if you went where there was more open space, fewer companies pouring millions into research, fewer chemists who understood the field, fewer already existing drugs for yours to compete with? And what if all that was true because the kind of drugs that you were making have typically been highly illegal, have for decades had the stigma of hippie culture, underground chemical labs, and black markets. But what if all that was changing? Welcome to the newest arms race in the pharmaceutical industry, developing brand new psychedelic drugs. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. John Semley is a Canadian writer and researcher currently based in Philadelphia, where he recently wrote The High Stakes Race to Engineer New Psychedelic Drugs for Wired Magazine. Hey, John. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course. And maybe we can just start, and we've covered this from a couple of angles on this show already, but just to lay the groundwork, can you sort of tell us about the past several years and how the stigma or the view of psychedelics has shifted? Definitely, yeah. I mean, I think we are in the sort of middle of a what's been called a psychedelic renaissance that has been kind of unfolding over the past decade, almost more than a decade now. I think the big sort of thing that sparked this off was in 2006, there was a study done at Johns Hopkins University that using all the scientific rigor available essentially proved that psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, can produce what they call mystical type experiences when given to people. That means these sort of intense hallucinatory experiences that have a very powerful emotional impact. Now, any old hippie could tell you that that's the case. Uh, but I think the fact that it was proven with sort of double blinding and, like I say, scientific rigor, it sort of afforded these drugs a new seriousness in the clinical landscape. Since then, I mean, you've seen sort of cultural shifts happen. The, you know, reemergence of the popularity of Grateful Dead music and tie-dye t-shirts. You had the success of Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, which is now a Netflix documentary miniseries. Mm -hmm. And I think that people's attitudes about these drugs 
are changing. You know, it's no longer you'll take LSD and fly out of a window or something like that. People are understanding that these drugs are powerful. These drugs are definitely weird and strange, but that that power and weirdness and strangeness can be harnessed towards very productive ends. And there have also been, you know, limited programs using some of these drugs to microdose for depression and other mental health issues, right? Absolutely. Microdosing became kind of a meme, I guess, which, you know, microdosing is taking a small amount of psilocybin or LSD on a daily basis or a couple times a week, sort of, yeah, almost as a form of antidepressant. Or some people kind of use it even as a for the amphetamine effect of LSD. Like you hear about people microdosing and it makes them more productive. You know, I don't think the science behind microdosing is really quite there. And personally, I think that it's a a placebo effect type thing where you become more productive and better adjusted because you think that you are. But I think that itself is telling. I mean, the brain is really the tool that is at the center of all of this. And it's something that we only have a kind of cursory understanding of. So the fact that people report positive benefits to microdosing just from a sort of placebo basis I think, speaks to the power of the brain, which, again, is at the center of the power of psychedelic drugs. So as that whole shift has happened over a decade or more, how have the traditional pharmaceutical giants reacted to it? Well, the traditional giants, I think, are still kind of at arm's length. You know, Johnson & Johnson has created a nasal spray based on ketamine, which is not really a psychedelic. It's more of a disassociative. Their version, which is called esketamine, I have heard it said that it has kind of psychedelic effects, but there have certainly been a number of biopharma, biotech startups that have taken a huge interest in this and have invested huge, huge, huge sums of money into clinically trialing and developing psychedelic drugs in the hopes that they may become, you know, maybe pharmaceutical drugs that you get over the counter or maybe sort of uh, treatments and licensed therapies. I mean, you already see some of these therapies occurring, whether it be ketamine therapies, which happen throughout North America, or in certain jurisdictions, magic mushroom therapies, which are, I believe, legal in Oregon in the U.S. And in Canada, there's a group called Theracil that has been doing magic mushroom therapy by getting sort of special dispensations from the Canadian government to say that, you know, people have the right to try these medicines and use them in this capacity. But yeah, I think uh, as far as these sort of antidepressive effects that people are looking at, you know, the big pharma industry has so much invested in SSRIs and Zoloft and all Mm -hmm. these things that I don't think they're quite on board yet. So what about these new startups then? And you went inside one or at least as far inside as they would allow you to go. Maybe tell me about Jason Wallach. Who is he and and what is the Discovery Center? Yeah, so the Discovery Center is, it's a lab, it's a program, it's a sponsored research agreement between, I have to get this right, it's St. Joseph University. It used to be called uh, the University of Sciences in Philadelphia, which is actually in one form the oldest pharmacological college in the United States. So it's an agreement between them and Compass Pathways, which is a UK-based biotech startup. They're one of the kind of biggest publicly traded psychedelic startups. And Compass's core business right now is trying to get a psilocybin-based drug and therapy to market, but they're also investing heavily in what's called drug discovery, which means trying to find new drugs, trying to trial new drugs. And Jason is kind of the person at Compass who's leading the charge on this. And to me, what interested me about it is, you know, this could be, if you believe the people who are investing in it, the new frontier of of mental health treatment, you know? And you go to this lab and it's like, you know, Jason's in his mid-30s, you have grad students, you have, I mean, for lack of a better word, 
kids, basically. Hmm. And they're so invested in this and it's so exciting. And it's like, this is basically a career field that had never existed before, or at least hadn't existed for about 50 or 60 years when all of this research was forced underground due to the Controlled Substances Act. Uh, so it's a really kind of exciting environment where you have young, brilliant chemists who are really at the forefront of a, a renaissance in psychopharmacology or at least psychedelic psychopharmacology, which is a mouthful. So how does it how does it work? How does one actually go about concocting new psychedelic drugs? Yeah, so basically the the key to the work done at Compass involves a cellular protein in the brain called the 5-HT2A receptor. Now, I'm not good at the chemistry stuff even myself, but the, the analogy I always like to use is the 5-HT2A receptor is think of it like a keyhole, right? It regulates serotonin. It has, you know, can can affect everything from appetite to sexual arousal. And a lot of the traditional classical psychedelics like LSD or psilocybin or DMT, they work by sort of playing on the 5-HT2A receptor. So what the people at the Drug Discovery Center are doing is trying to find new drugs that can affect that receptor. Like I say, think of the receptor like a keyhole, right? They're basically trying to find new ways to pick the lock and get inside there. Uh, so what they do is they take the structures of drugs that might exist, like psilocybin or DMT or LSD, and they sort of play with that structure. You know, they move a molecule over here, they move a molecule over there. They try to see what kind of new drugs and new drug experiences can be created with the sort of known architecture of psychedelics that is well-documented. And how do you know if the drugs they create are actually psychoactive, psychedelic. Uh, tell me about the mice. How do you figure this out? <laughs> okay. Well, back in the old days when this stuff was underground, uh, you would synthesize a drug and then just take it. And then you would know if it works or not. Oh, the good old days. The good old days. Uh, and I mean, that is an attitude, you know, this isn't something, I'm not saying that this happens at the Drug Discovery Center, good Lord. But that is the sort of, this is the thing about the underground is it was almost easier in that way, right? I mentioned in the article the, the chemist Alexander Shulgin, who developed hundreds of psychedelics and recorded his experiences with them. And this guy is like, you know, a saint the people at Drug Discovery Center. But when you have to be above board and you can't have scientists, you know, running around dosing themselves in the lab, you have to find more kind of scientifically grounded methods. The key one that they use at the lab is they test the drugs on mice. There's been multiple studies shown that when the 5-HT2A receptor of a mouse is affected, they sort of do these head twitchy gestures, right? Uh, so you can measure the head twitches and that gives you a pretty good idea of if the drug will be powerful psychedelically and just how powerful it will be. Now, as I say in the article, obviously a mouse can't be like, wow, I saw my dead grandfather and they led me into a realm of pure love and understanding. So really what's, what they're gaining through the mouse is only an understanding of if these things work and how powerful they might be. The next steps, which are testing and trialing on humans, I mean, I think that is still a ways off. So how many drugs have they made so far? What kinds of drugs? And I know I'm asking you this question when there's a lot of secrecy involved here. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like this is an interesting thing about private investment coming into this space is right. it is becoming, I guess, more secretive. The development and trialing of these drugs, the, these are things that are made with an eye towards patents and profit now. So that creates a sort of a bit of a closed book structure. I mean, there's still an exchange of information and ideas. But even when I was in the lab, I felt like, you know, and Willy Wonka, like that guy Slugworth, who's always slinking around trying to steal the everlasting gobstopper. That was kind of how I felt. You know, people are turning labels away from me the whole time, as if I know anything about this, right? Like I see a diagram of a new psychedelic. It just looks like a bunch of 
intersecting hexagons and lines to me. But yes, they have made, I would say, my estimate is at least 150 new drugs in intermediate stages and you know, drugs that haven't been totally refined and finalized, there's probably much more than that. Now, I guess the next question, if I can ask it, is what do you do with 150 psychedelics? I mean, I think I think this is part of the kind of patent play of this. Again, this is part of the new corporate climate is, you know, if you think of sort of spaces on a board that are potential combinations of psychedelic drugs, part of the race to patent these drugs is just to have the patent on them, right? Uh, you can claim the space and no one else can claim it because you have an exclusive right to it. Even if you have no idea if it'll be profitable, even if you have no intention of ever using it, you're precluding people from also using it. That is where in this space, there's a lot of criticism, right? That it's it's stifling invention. It's, you know, again, I think the land grab analogy kind of works or think of it like a monopoly board. There's only so many spaces on mon- a monopoly board, Right. Now, the counterpoint to this is like the potential combinations of chemicals that you can make is unfathomable. You know, it's like imagining stars in the galaxy or the universe. So to say that Jason made 150, and that's a lot, it is a lot, but within the sort of uh, universe of potential chemical compounds and even potential psychedelic compounds, it's a drop in the bucket. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. So I know you probably can't tell me, you know, what drugs exactly they've created. And that's good because I probably wouldn't understand them anyway. But what are they trying to get at with this research? Like, what kind of trips do they want people to have? How would they be different from the traditional psychedelics? Yeah, I mean, even if I knew, I couldn't tell you something um, because of NDAs. But I think the main thing that a lot of these companies, including Compass, are driving after, which is something that I can talk about, is trying to find what's sometimes called a sweet spot between the intensity of the experience and the duration of the experience, right? I mean, psilocybin has proven very powerful and very effective in certain clinical settings and therapies, but a psilocybin trip can be you know, six to eight hours, there's processing before, there's processing after. And when you're thinking of incorporating this in some sort of for-profit clinical model, that is not very cost-effective, right? DMT, contrarily, and 5-MeO DMT, which is a wild drug, have also proven very effective, but they're extremely short-acting. 10, 15 minutes, intense ego-death experiences that people sometimes have a hard time even making sense of. You go almost in and out of this other world so quickly that you don't know what to do with that experience. So I think what a lot of these companies are trying to do are trying to find drugs that are powerful, that can create those psychedelic experiences, but that can create these experiences within what they would call a container that is manageable, that doesn't span, you know, half a dozen, or in the case of LSD, sometimes a dozen hours. And that is where, again, this this sort of balance between the power of the experience and the sort of clinical cost effectiveness comes into play. 
how far do we have to go before, and let's assume, just for the sake of this conversation, that one of those 150 or so drugs they make, they they find that sweet spot, they think it's effective. How far do they have to go before you can actually get approval for this kind of drug, get it to market? Like, as I understand it, in many parts of the U.S. and Canada, these drugs are still pretty highly illegal, right? Yes and no. I mean, I think the core psychedelics, LSD, psilocybin, DMT, et cetera, they are by and large illegal outside of certain jurisdictions and certain places. One of the other things about creating new psychedelic drugs is a lot of these drugs, in fact, most of them and probably all of them are not scheduled in any sort of controlled substances act. If you create a drug that hasn't existed yet, there's no legal framework that exists around it, right? Right. I mean, sometimes you can get into trouble with that because you could say, you know, I'm not making LSD, I'm making ALD25. And then a cop will say, well, you had to create a chemical precursor that is illegal to make it, blah, 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 blah. But part of the thing about creating new drugs is that they don't fall under drug laws that exist. Now, does that mean that you can push them to market in a conventional above board way? No, you have to go through, at least in the US, uh, Food and Drug Administration approval. As far as how far out these things are, you know, right now there's an MDMA drug. You know, MDMA sometimes is called an empathogen. It's not really a psychedelic. It doesn't quite work in the same way that traditional psychedelics work. But it is being developed by a nonprofit called MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And they're at stage three of their FDA trial, which after stage three comes approval. So they're the furthest ahead. Compass's psilocybin treatment is at stage two. A company called MindMed has an LSD treatment at stage two. So these things are happening and they are moving along the board. But, you know, I would say we're still five years out from seeing these in a sort of traditional pharmaceutical medical context. What is happening is certain states and certain jurisdictions and certain doctors are getting legal exemptions to conduct these therapies despite the broad illegality of these drugs. Now, the other side of this coin, which is something I couldn't quite get into in the article, is there's a lot of sort of cultural hubbub about this, right? You know, oh, this is also corporate. It's all patents and blah, blah, blah. You know, that's true. And I understand that complaint. But the other thing is for anyone interested in these drugs in the sort of traditional, by which I mean underground way, any patent that's created on a new drug is essentially a recipe card for an underground chemist. When these 150 drugs go to the patent board and the process of making them is publicly divulged, anyone who wants to cook them up in their basement can do so. So not only is it going to create a sort of landscape of potentially profitable psychedelic drugs in a pharmaceutical context, it's also going to create an explosion in the still illegal psychedelic underground, which I think is itself very exciting for people. I want to talk about that psychedelic underground in just a minute. But first, to get a sense of what's at stake, you touched on this at the beginning, that there are a lot of startups doing this right now. Do we have a sense of the size of this nascent industry? Yeah, I, I think it's like anything. There are a number of unserious groups that will probably fall away. But, God, I can't count them, right? But I'd say about a dozen that are sort of serious players. You know, there's Compass, MindMed, Atai Life Science, Numinous, Wellness, uh, Cybin. These are just off the top of my head. And then there's also, as I mentioned, some nonprofits like MAPS, which is a decades old organization that has been advocating for this for a long time. The USONA Institute is doing a lot of research, et cetera, et cetera. Eventually, I think these, a lot of these groups will kind of consolidate and fall away, but we're still kind of in that early stage where it's a bit of a foot race and there's a lot of people still in that foot race. But it does kind of feel like a very big corporate 180 from the era that most of us associate with psychedelics. You know, you mentioned the the Grateful Dead music and the tie-dye shirts. What does that community that have 
advocated for these drugs for so long while they were highly restricted. Think about them becoming what at least appears to be, if you want to take a cynical view of it, a a race for pure profit. Yeah, I mean, well, people don't like it. And I think there's a couple of reasons for this. You know, that said, there have been people who have successfully moved from the underground to the corporate world in their own way. I mentioned one in the story, a chemist named Peter Vander Hayden, who's Canadian. He works out of Calgary. He used to be a clandestine chemist who is now working above ground, developing and producing psychedelic drugs with the licenses to do so. And good for him. If there's anyone who I think deserves to profit off this new investment, it's people like Peter who, you know, had to work underground and spent time in jail creating an appetite and an awareness for these drugs. Now, that said, this idea that like corporations are coming in and and turning it into this kind of white collar thing, yeah, it rubs a lot of people the wrong way. And I think that there's that cultural element that you mentioned, you know, this this sort of these drugs are associated with a kind of the hippie culture of peace and love and understanding. I mean, all those most of those hippies eventually sold out and bought Jerry Garcia neckties in the 80s anyway. But at a deeper level, I think it has something to do with how these drugs work. I mean, people who have psychedelic experiences talk about these profound feelings of love and connectedness and peace and these values that seem totally counterintuitive to the sort of cutthroat corporate world as we know it. So I think a lot of those criticisms are totally valid. Now, from the other side of the coin, I mentioned MAPS and their MDMA drug, right? You know, MAPS has been working for three decades to get a drug to phase three of FDA approval, and they've done amazing work. And MAPS is an incredible organization. But with the power of like private corporate investment and the money that flows into it, groups like Compass are right on their tail, and they've only been operating for a couple of years, you know? So... uh, it, it's it's hard to argue with that, you know, it, I think it depends on, on A, your values, and B, how you want to square those values with the belief in those drugs. If you believe that these drugs can really help people and that we should be trying to get them to people as soon as possible, then maybe corporate investment is the best way to do that. I'm personally a little bit ambivalent and undecided, but it's hard to argue when a company can raise as much money in five years as another has in, in 30, you know. This is my last question. And what are you most curious to see happen next? It does feel just from this conversation like there at some point there's going to be a tipping point here, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I I think with a lot of this stuff, you and even if you look at the investment into psychedelics, I mean, these companies came out of the gate and were way overvalued, and now the market has totally shrunk. There's been a natural contraction because there are no products. But you know, that corporate stuff and this stuff about patents. To me, it's like the least interesting part of it. So what's the most interesting part? The drugs, the drugs, what drugs are going to be created, what experiences will be produced by them. I mean, you have people working with drugs that say it will just affect your ability to hear sound. You'll have no visual hallucination. We're talking about creating whole new modes of experience at the end of the day, right? And I think that that is ultimately what is driving the chemists and I I think it's what drives me to be interested in them in a lot of ways. You know, I had someone say to me recently, if we could create a drug that would allow you to see the world in black and white, wouldn't that be useful just on its own? You know, or wouldn't it be interesting just on its own? So so these things that come that come out, the things that they suggest and illuminate about how our brain works, how consciousness works. I mean, I think there are ways in which psychedelics can illuminate age-old questions. And I sound like an old hippie saying stuff like that. (laughs) I was going to say. (laughs) But those questions and the potential answers to those questions and the way in which people are now able to pursue them without having to work out of, you know, stinky drug bunkers and being chased around by the DEA, that to me is much more exciting than, you know, what German biotech is going to come out on top in five years. 
It's an exciting time, um, and I would like to see the world in black and white, and I would like to be able to buy it at my pharmacy for $12.95. <laughs> in Canada, hopefully free. Yes. Thanks, John. Thanks very much for having me. John Semley, writing in Wired Magazine. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. If you would like to listen to a couple of our other episodes on psychedelics, just scroll down to the bottom and type that in the search bar, if you can spell it. You can also find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN, via email at hello at TheBigStoryPodcast.ca, or leave us a voicemail. The number is 416-935-5935. If you've taken psychedelics, definitely call and ramble for a while. This episode of The Big Story was produced by Rajpreet Sahoda. And you can find this podcast wherever you get your favorite ones. If they let you, please rate and review. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.